So, uh, tonight I'm speaking on Mark 11:27 to 12:27, in which there are four episodes of Jesus and the religious Jewish leaders. In all four encounters, there's kind of this main theme of these religious experts, so-called, challenging and coming up against Jesus' authority and divinity. But what really stood out to me as I, you know, sat in the passage and reread and went back, and uh, what stood out to me was the amazing way that Jesus spoke to these detractors of his, especially the questions. I mean, there were questions and answers that he gave, but especially the questions, and here's why. Jesus' questions to his challengers actually are like a diagnostic, and they reveal the hearts of those whose goal it was to test and ultimately trap Jesus in his words. What was their ultimate goal? Their ultimate goal was to catch Jesus in his speaking in such a way so that he'd be arrested and, in their minds, hopefully killed. Yet Jesus' response, and particularly his questions, they expose those schemes, while at the same time, He's giving them a chance to recognize the truth about himself and his father. Now, two weeks ago, you heard Joanna Freiling, and she gave you a little bit of a um, personal story. And I'm going to take my cue from her, and I'm going to tell you uh, a short personal story about how God makes good use of a good question. So, many years ago, I mean, I can say many now because I was in seminary and I was studying counseling and there was a counseling professor, a teacher, who worked at CCF and he was kind of my mentor. And over time, um, I mean, he, he counseled me and he talked with me and over time we became friends. And as the months went by, I mean, sometimes I'd go down to the counseling center, but I lived at the seminary. We'd walk around and talk. We'd talk of things like faith and life and relationships. I got to know his wife and his children and different times we talk about different things like family and marriage and singleness, because I was single. And over time, he could see how I typically, just kind of as a knee-jerk, I always kept most single men at a distance. I had this gift of, like, putting up walls and shutting things down, usually, with the opposite sex. So one day we're talking, and this friend, he asks me, so what was I doing to meet any potential, potentially marriageable men? And I proudly answered, well, I, I believe God is sovereign. And when God wants to bring the right man into my life, he will. So I, I'm trusting him to do that. He comes back with, to clarify the question. So then you're not seeking out this, like you're not going to singles events. You're not uh, trying to meet someone, not putting yourself in a position to try to seek out opportunities to be a single man. I said, no, no, because I'm trusting God. And here's the question. Here's the, that got me. He says, well, let me understand this then. If you can trust God to bring the right man in, then why can you not trust God to keep the wrong one out? Gulp. Ouch. I was so like, uh, because that good question was used of God to reveal what was going on with my heart motives and a lot of my unbelief. For even though I would have told you I was trusting God and I was open to God's will, there really was a lot of fear within. 
and it resulted in my control strategies, really sort of exposing thinking that I could take better care of myself and keep the wrong one out than God could. And yes, in case you're wondering, uh, it did lead me to repentance and some changes of my behavior over time. took me a while. But that's just one small example of how very self-deceived we all can be. So I kind of think in my head sometimes, I love a good question, especially a question you can't really readily answer. I think, never underestimate the heart-penetrating power of a good question, particularly from God. And usually, I'd say these good questions, they typically invite a faith response. So having that in mind, let's take a look at the, the scene, the setting, and these challengers to Jesus and Jesus' wise questions and answers as he's really, as he speaks, he's revealing his detractors' duplicity and hypocrisy, and he's revealing how he is God's son. So first of all, Matthew eleven twenty-seven to 33, if you have your Bibles or uh, your notebook, just take a look at that. The scene here is Jesus is walking in the temple courts, And he's talking, and he's teaching people, and they are following him as he speaks to hear his words. Now, the other people that are there um, uh, are the uh, chief priest, the elders, and the teachers of the law, and they're also there. Now, they're almost like that's the group that would make up the Sanhedrin, really, that Jesus will be before later. But the Sanhedrin was like 70 people. I'm sure there wasn't 70, but they had their representatives. So as he's talking and teaching... This really bothered the learned ones because they would have been known for their being educated by certain rabbinical schools or teachers. And yet here's Jesus, and and this is from a commentary, Matthew Henry, who not being duly qualified as a rabbi or teacher from any particular school that they recognized, he was having this great following. And also they were very upset about Jesus' official act of, of clearing out the temple um, courts of the Gentiles from the sellers and money changers. That, we just had that in um, Mark eleven fifteen to 17. So what they're trying to do is they want to put him on the spot. They want to insist that he tell them of his rabbinical qualifications to prove that he had the proper authority to teach as well as to rout out that den of thieves. Now, I just want you to know, this, this isn't any new thing. I mean, the authority of Jesus. I, I taught the first chapter of John, you know, back in September. And um, at the end of chapter 1, you know, the crowd was like, what's this? Teaching with authority? Like, he's not debating, well, Hillel, the rabbi said this, or Shemit said this. He's just saying, truly, truly, I say to you, and he's telling it like it is. You can go back in chapter 1, chapter 2, 4, 5, and... All that Jesus does, the teaching comes with authority. His powerfully casting out evil spirits is authoritative. He heals with authority. And what do the people respond? They're amazed. They're amazed. But the Pharisees and the chief priests and the elders, they were so busy defending their positions, they they couldn't take in or they didn't take in all these amazing proofs of who he was. Even their questioning, where, where, did, where did you get this authority? Who does it come from? You know, it's, it's not really um, a question that's a sincere request to understand what's going on. They don't really want to know the truth. 
It's just their, I keep thinking of this word, posturing. They're posturing, and it's a ploy. Let me ask you something, teacher. You know, they want to set him up for ridicule. Um, I love this commentary from Matthew Henry. He said this. He said, their duplicity in not having any interest to really know of Jesus' origin and authority, but instead to secure a better standing in the crowd's view, that that kind of behavior, what they're doing, um, is not going to be rewarded by Jesus giving them a real answer. So instead, Jesus challenges them with this question. I mean, it's a great question. It's kind of like you're, you're talking with somebody about some debating something. It's kind of par for par, you know. Well, if you give, I'll ask you a question, and if you give me an honest answer, then I will honestly answer your question. So he asks, well, was, let me ask you a question. Was the ministry of John the Baptist, you know, his coming, his talking about the kingdom coming, his baptizing people, was that, and he, he says from heaven in the scripture, but it's really from God. Was it from God or from man? And by this question, Jesus is kind of indirectly saying that Jesus' teaching and authority stem from that same source. He's saying, well, tell me that. Um, Actually, someone said, one of the commentators, because Jesus' teaching and words were so near to John's, they, they actually had the same origin, the same design, and the same tendency to introduce and usher in the gospel kingdom. That's what he was about. That's what Jesus was about. So this revealing of the schemes of the challengers and their duplicitous hearts, it's, it comes pretty obvious when you ask that because they can't give them a simple answer. We should, we should think about that. If somebody asks you something, you can't just say, I did this, and you're like, well, actually, let me tell you. Let me tell you what's going on. If you're equivocating, there's probably a reason. Uh, when Meredith heard this, he said, yeah, sin, we have an author that we really like, and he always says, sin complicates things. Um, So, again, because their goal is how can we put Jesus down as a fraud without harming how the people see us, and yet as they do this, they know that if they denounce John's baptism as not from God and they try to throw Jesus in that same, you know, bag, then the crowd is not going to be happy. So what do they do? They they bag out. They say, actually, we we can't answer that. We we don't know. And I love what... um, The Tyndale commentary, R.A. Cole, says this. Jesus' question to them was not a trap. It was was another opportunity for this group to realize and confess their own blindness and to ask him for sight. You know, just like Bartimaeus last week, you know, Lord, I want to see. They could have said that. But these here, they they were men who contemptuously refused to take the opportunity. So what's the application for us? I'm going to ask you questions based on Jesus' questions. When God allows an uncomfortable question to expose your heart or my heart, maybe shows my fear of man or my pride or my unbelief, what will we do with that God-given opportunity? Sinclair Ferguson says this, When God's word searches out man's motives and exposes the heart, two reactions are always possible. One, People can see themselves as they really are, repent from their sin, and turn to the Lord. Or two, they can harden their hearts against the one who has exposed their need and have a bitterness form within their hearts and resolve to be rid of any of Jesus' influence. And that's what the second, that's what the challengers were taking that second response. But I want you to see that, you know, why Jesus was doing what he was doing in this, this dialogue, these questions. 
He was exposing their hearts in order to give them the opportunity to be restored. Um, This next section, uh, first 12 verses of Mark, is Jesus, he decides to take another tack. He's going to tell a parable. It's a parable of judgment. And um, I like like how Sinclair Ferguson says, if you remember what um, Ray was saying last week, it's kind of another parable of judgment because Sinclair Ferguson says, the parable of the vineyard was, in fact, the spoken form of the parable of the fig tree. Remember last week? This tree, it looks like it's going to be fruitful. It doesn't bear fruit. There's a judgment. And this is another uh, parable of that. And as he's talking about this, his hearers then would have definitely recognized the narrative of this, what I call stolen vineyard. It came from a passage in Isaiah 5, verses 1 to 2, which I'm going to read. It says, I will sing for the one I love a song about his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up and cleared it of stones and planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it and cut a wine press as well. Then he looked for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. Now I'm going to go on and read verse 7 in Isaiah um, 2 because that's very helpful. It says, The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the house of Israel. So they would know this. They would know that this is what he's speaking of, okay? And really, um, it's about this, this parable. It's kind of about two main things. It's about Israel, how Israel is going to relate to Messiah or the Son of God. And it's also about um, how God is going to remove the old way, the, the Jewish uh, church and temple way, in order to have a new gospel church. So without going into all the details, because you've probably been reading and talking about, you will talk about who's who, the vineyard is basically um, God's people. It's, it's this um, the Jewish nation, the, the church, his chosen ones. The tenant farmers were those leaders, apparently, who decided they could take it over. And then they decided to hurt or kill or maim anyone who came as his servant, which, of course, in the uh, study Bible, it says it's the prophets. Uh, and they even decided to kill God's son. Now, um, J.R. Edwards says the climax of the parable is verse 6, which in it it says, And he, which is the owner, had one left to send, a son whom he loved. And he sent him last of all, saying, I want to say, surely they will respect my son. And so here's what the commentary was noting. I thought it was very helpful. This is a sign of such deep compassion it's not just some kind of judgment that he's the legal heir and he's going to show them. You know, God at any time, the owner at any time, could have dealt swiftly some retribution uh, every time they killed a prophet or whatever, killed one of his servants. But he showed great forbearance and great compassion. So even though he was um, entitled to retribution to wipe out those tenant farmers, before that, this, he's had giving them a last chance, sending his beloved son. And we heard, where we heard that, this is my son, the one I love. We heard that at Jesus' baptism, and that was sort of a call. We also heard it in chapter nine in the in the transfiguration. I mean, this, the father can't help but break out into that because of such love. So everyone knows this reference is really about God the Father and and Jesus, his son. I mean, that's how Jesus means it. So it's. And I like how this was also brought out. It's not that the tenant farmers 
were just killing, killing, kind of are doing, getting worse and worse. It's because they didn't know who's coming. This, they knew that the father was sending this heir. And the judgment is all the more severe because instead of having respect for that or honoring, they recognized him for who he was and then they kill him. Um, Edward says, no longer content with just the owner's produce or the fruit, the tenant farmers go for his property as well. Sort of like that, if you can see the chief priests, the elders, and the Pharisees, they want ownership. They want to be known as, you know, sort of their practices, their practice in the the temple, their church. And so when Jesus asks this question, you know, what's the first question he gets to? Um, It's kind of like, it's a hard question. It, It it goes right sort of bottom line, goes right to the to the core of what they're doing. He says, so after the whole story's done, he says, so what will the owner of the vineyard do? And you know, if I were them, I'd be kind of, uh, what, what is he going to do? And he says, he's going to kill them. There's going to be destruction, and he's going to give the vineyard to others. Now, a lot of places say, I don't know if this is what everybody agrees on, but the, often it says that this kind of happened, this destruction uh, was fulfilled when the city of Jerusalem was laid to waste in AD 70, and the nation really was, um, the religious uh, Israel was kind of made a desolation. And then when he says give to others, everyone seems to agree that that's the Gentiles. That they, they always thought, you know, the chief priests, elders, scribes, they are the favored nation. They are God's only. God, you know, pr- approves of them. But to give this vineyard, this church to others, that probably made them really angry. And then the second question sort of comes like a one-two punch. It comes right after that with a lot of irony. You know, he says, well, haven't you read, and I love it, it's almost like saying, haven't you who consider yourselves to be experts in the Torah? I'm sorry, haven't you read the verse about the stone the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone? The Lord has done this, and it's marvelous in our eyes. He's referring to Psalm 118, verses 22 to 23. And that psalm was about a king and celebrating his deliverance and victory over enemy nations. And what's interesting about that is, um, you know, the dist- they say that, the commentaries on that psalm say that the disdain was for the king or the disdain was for Israel. They were, they were not thought of as a very big nation, very good. And it's saying that those who had previously been looked upon with disdain by those with worldly power, yet now had become the most important cornerstone, kind of the lead stone of God's house. And of course, if if they always thought that was Israel, now here they're disdaining and rejecting and despising Jesus. So Jesus' question is really meant for them to realize and recognize that even though they would see Jesus as despised and rejected, no authority, not much to, you know, think that they don't, not impressed with him, that he truly was essential for God's uh, new kingdom. And as he says this, as Jesus says this is going to happen, he's resting. He's saying it calmly that God is going to vindicate me in my role. And he's not, he's not boasting or, or having to, you know, go on and on. He just speaks it clearly. And what do the religious leaders do? Do they argue? Do they fight? They slink away. Again, not that they wouldn't disagree, but they're all about what are the crowds doing, posturing. I don't think this is the time. We're not going to be popular. 
So, so there could be some thoughts of questions for us. I was thinking, yeah, we probably posture too sometimes. We probably say something just to see how people will see us. That's one thought. But, but, my, but the central theme for me is, um, for believers, what, what is it that we do with Jesus? That's what he's asking them, cornerstone. You know, how do we treat him day to day? Is he your cornerstone? Is he the main support you look to? Is he the center of your life or my life? I could ask that question many times a day um, and be convicted. So the third section is um, Matthew 12, 13 to 17. Jesus' challengers are next trying to trip him up or trap him about his answer to, is it right to pay Roman taxes? The interesting thing about this is they, they put these two groups together, a very unlikely pairing of the Pharisees, um, whose worldview was they did not like to pay the tax. They hated and opposed Roman rule and the Herodians. And the Herodians, as by their name, they were for Rome's authority over them. I don't know if they thought Rome is so wonderful or organized, but they didn't mind paying the tax because they said Rome's got a good thing and we should follow them. So you put these two completely opposite groups together. Why? How? How could that be? Because they both hate Jesus. They think Jesus is going to mess up their system. So they only come together in order to trap Jesus. They thought they had an airtight uh, way to condemn him. If he said, no, no, I don't agree with paying taxes to, to Rome, he could be executed for treason. That would be civil disobedience. If he said, well, yes, I think the Pharisees, yes, um, they should be paying taxes, then the Pharisees would say, this man is disloyal to our nation. So they asked him, this is this airtight thing. There's no way he can get through this. Um, and Joyce and I were just chatting. You know, he's they're so oily and flattering. Like, well, you know, teacher, that you are respected by all, have such great integrity, you will only tell the truth, which is true. But the way they're saying it, Jesus would have known, um, I love this verse in Proverbs 29.5, whoever flatters his neighbor is spreading a net for his feet. So Jesus knows. When you hear flattery, <clears throat> all parents know this, right? Mom and Dad, you're such good parents, and I just really love you so much. And by the way, could I have a 20 spot for this weekend? Anyway, we all know that flattery is sort of getting us, trying to get someone to get something. So Jesus comes back with a very clear, direct, simple question, um, which I appreciate. He just cuts right through it. He says, why are you trying to trap me? And he doesn't even wait for an answer because he knows. It's obvious. But his second question, which is, again, seemingly very simple, leads to a deeper place. Give me a coin. Let me look at it. Whose image, whose picture, and whose um, title is on this? And, of course, they say Caesar's. But the deeper part of his question is when he says, then allow Caesar to have his due, to have what is his. But then he says, but give to God. And, again, the implication is, in whose image we are made, Give to him what belongs to God, which is what? Our lives, ourselves, any, our thanksgiving, any good fruit you bear, which is kind of interesting because the good fruit refers to the parable. Uh, give all of that, the good fruit, do him for his glory. So what are the questions for us in this? Who or what might we be trusting in? Who are we living for? And, and even another way of saying it, if someone were to look closely at your life and watch you as you, do, as you do life, 
Who would they think you belong to? Or where do you give your allegiance, your service, your love? These are convicting for me. Um, The last section is um, where the... um, I was thinking of a baseball metaphor. So the Pharisees and the chief priests struck out in their attempt to undermine Jesus' authority. And they send the second batter up, you know, who's set of challenges with trying to denounce his credibility in terms of uh, civil obedience. And now they send a third batter. And uh, this opposition, um, they are trying to set up uh, a question he cannot answer or he's going to answer and be look foolish by the Sadducees because they want to discredit him theologically. That's why they, they give you these very complicated questions. And sometimes Pharisees, or excuse me, they would always love to say, well, the teacher so-and-so says this, and that, you know they just want to see what he's going to do with this. Now, m- many of you might know this, but I think it's just good to say the basic thing about who the Sadducees were, because my NIV study Bible said it well. Who were the Sadducees? Briefly, they were a particular sect of Jews, um, often wealthy, who read and followed only the books of Moses, the first five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. They thought that was the only true canon of Scripture, they were all about the temple, and again, they're wealthy, and I'm sure they were all about outfitting the temple with the things, the gold and all, and they, they're about the Levitical purity, how things should be done. They didn't attribute a lot to God's sovereignty, but attributed more to free will, and they did not believe in the resurrection, nor any afterlife, nor angels or demons. And uh, the last thing it said in the NIV Study Bible, in Jesus' time, this group executed was that right? Executed, yeah. Powerful political and religious influence, especially when they're wealthy. So how would the Sadducees set Jesus up? This this is a quote from um, the Tyndale Commentary with R.A. Cole. The Sadducees were attempting to make spiritual truth look ridiculous by interpreting it with the grossest of literalism. By doing this, they hoped that the whole concept of the theological uh, belief of resurrection they hope that that would be, as it were, laughed out of court. So it's like, have you ever heard somebody say, and I've never had anybody ask me this, but I've heard people talk about, it's kind of a moot point. It's like how many angels can fit on the, you know, the head of a pin? Like That's just a kind of a crazy question that doesn't have any reality in life today. As they were asking this question to Jesus, they probably did it with a snicker. They probably thought, hey, let's throw on this one. Because it's a ridiculous question, and they would like Jesus to have to talk about it and wrestle with it, so he'd look foolish. But again, what does Jesus do? His first question, I, I, it's like a, it's like a, when you play darts, it goes right at, at the bullseye. He cuts through the foolishness. He cuts through their folly. And he puts before them what I think is a very serious charge. He says, are you not wrong or are you not in error because you don't really know the scriptures nor the power of God? Jesus isn't, he's not fooling around here. He thinks that's pretty serious stuff. He tears away the cover of the folly, and he kind of gets at the real problem that they have. Um, And again, why is he exposing them? Well, he's exposing this wrong thinking out of love. He's, He's speaking to them in love about what is concerning, because they are not realizing, one, the resurrection life, when we die and go to heaven with God, it's not just a continuance of things, you know, every day down here. You know, you're not, well, I guess when 
I'm an accountant now. I wonder how I'll be an accountant in heaven. You're, it's not just the regular life that you have here. It's completely different. And a, a good reference for this is 1 Corinthians 15, uh, 35 to 56. Lots of verses. It says um, your bodies are going to be different. You're going to be, you know, you're, you die perishable. You're going to be raised imperishable. Um, you're going to uh, have uh, reflect the, the Lord's glory. You're going to have um, a spiritual body. You're going to be like the angels in heaven. You're going to be completely different. And so he's, he's saying this to them, you're wrong, because you really don't understand and don't know the, the Bible. You don't know the scripture. And then a second question, again, with a little irony, again, like it said before, they love these five books, right? And he says, have you not read in the book of Moses, which of course they would have thought they'd read it all, and they knew it all. He says, in the account of the burning bush, how God did say to Moses, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So it is ironic that he's using the very books they say they're experts in to prove something that they say they don't believe in. And this proves that those who had died, the patriarchs, were still with God after their death in heaven. Um, and I'm going to quote um, Sinclair Ferguson. He says it well. God's For God's covenant promises to save his people would not be of any significance or value if that were overcome and shadowed by death. So the fact that he has this present relationship, I'm their God, he's proving they are alive with me in heaven. Which leads us maybe to an obvious question. I don't know. I've I've thought this. I've heard this echo in my head. Uh, Do we err? Are we wrong? because we do not know the truths of Scripture and the power of God, I'm probably more convicted about the second thing. That's the one I relate to. Like, sometimes I choose my course of action, or I do, or I say what I do, because I'm thinking God's not working, or God's not fast enough, or I wish God would just, I just need to take this into my own hands. And that's me, you know, not believing in the power of God. Jesus' questions to his detractors, I think they can be questions for us. It's sort of like, you remember a couple weeks ago when it was the transfiguration and there was that part where the father said, this is my son, the one I love. Listen to him. I felt like that rang in my ears for about, well, still a little bit, but like three weeks. I was like, he's saying, listen, listen to me. I'm like, okay. I mean, those words can just echo in our own hearts. Um, and I think that's wonderful. But sometimes there's other questions. You know, you can get them from all kinds of places. Uh, here's my here's my point. Are we listening to the questions and maybe the, the answers or the words that the Spirit of Truth is speaking to us today? And when we are struck by Jesus' words or by the truth, will we be the, those who receive it with soft and repentant hearts, responding in faith and love for God, trust and obedience? Or will we be those who just harden our hearts Um, and refuse to listen to what God is telling us. So what I'd like to do just for a minute, I'd just like us to put stuff off your lap. I just want you to have some quiet, because I wonder, you know, if God has been speaking to you, not necessarily because of this talk, but just maybe been trying to tell you something, Maybe, maybe asking you. Some of the questions he asked me are like, why are you so afraid? Or why won't you trust me? So I'd just like us to have a minute or two of quiet, and then I'll, I'll have a watch. You don't have to worry about the time. And then I'll close in prayer.